O Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. You are our only hope in this world today. We recognize, Father, that it is because we serve the sovereign God that we truly can consider the future uh, at, with, with brightness and with hope. To know, Lord, that you will bring about your perfect will in your time. Father, I ask that you will touch our lives today in a special way. Help us to have a greater understanding of the reality of God. May we walk in closer relationship with you. Lord, I pray that our study today will be anointed of God, that you will guide us in understanding the truths of the word as we read them today. And Lord, we ask that as the service is taking place in the other building right now, that you will bless that time too. And throughout our Sunday school, be present in each class, accomplishing your perfect will, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 31, verse 22. Genesis chapter 31, verse 22. And when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. And God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. And Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. When Laban said to Jacob, What have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and with lyre? It did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. And now you have indeed gone away, because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, Lest you would take your daughters from me by force. The one with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. This is a very interesting little account. And if you can kind of picture yourself riding through the, the western plains of Syria and up into the hill country of Jordan on a camel, then you can kind of get a feel for, for this particular situation. As I noted to you last time, Laban and his sons were three days distant from the encampment there near Haran, and they were shearing the sheep. And it took a messenger the better part of three days to get to Laban to tell him that Jacob had even left. And then, of course, he had to finish his job there, get back to Haran. He had to call his kinsmen together to get ready for this journey. And as I mentioned to you before, it's, it's very easy to see how a full week would have passed in all of those activities. Laban, I think, was extremely angry when he was told of Jacob's precipitous departure. I mean, the, the thought flooded his, into his mind, after all I've done for this young man, he just up and leaves like this. A deceiver does not like to have the tables turned on him. 
His anger, I think, was further stoked by the fact that his, his gods were gone. His good luck little idols were all stolen. And that just made it worse because, for one thing, a, a note of fear was there. Without these gods to go to, how in the world was he going to discover the future? How, he was, going, how was he going to define the will of the gods if he didn't have his little idols to go to? So what we see here is at Haran, at his encampment, which was certainly not in the city, but out, out of the city a little ways, he has called together all of his kinsmen from nearby districts, his cousins and his brothers and whoever all lived in the land. And he is forming, if you will, a posse. And this posse is going to chase after Jacob. And it took time to do this. I mean, you know, you don't just, you know, in the Western, they just come flying out of the, out of the bar and jump on the horse and away they go. But you just don't go off on a long distant journey like that. You have to get the food together, get the men together, get everything organized so that you can sustain a chase that would take, in this case, a full week. And so time was taken and we're looking at a very interesting situation. He is going to chase after him, certainly with camels. Camels were the most rapid uh, animal in that part of the world at that time. And so with camels, sort of a camel posse, he is uh, going to chase after Jacob. Now the trail, the trail is probably at least a week old now. But it's not a problem for him because he knows the way Jacob had to go, there was no other option, as I mentioned to you last time. I, I think I mentioned that uh, this whole concept of the Fertile Crescent is based upon the fact that the rivers Euphrates and Tigris flow out of Turkey in a southeasterly direction down to the Persian Gulf. That forms one branch of the so-called Fertile Crescent. And the other then are the connectors over to the coast and down into the valley of the Nile River. So you have these two great river valleys, that of the Nile and that of Mesopotamia, connected together in, in a strip from Haran over to, uh, let's say, Gaza, by mostly uh, smaller streams coming down out of the Lebanon and anti-Lebanon ranges, and then the hill country of Gilead, the hill country of uh, Ephraim and Judea, where there's enough rain to sustain grass. So we're looking at an area called the Fertile Crescent, along which you can travel and always have grass available and generally have water available. And so he knew that Jacob would have to flee down the major trade route in order to have water and grass available because he had very large flocks. And so he, he knew where to go. And so he lights out after him with his uh, kinsmen and with his, uh, with his servants. Now we're told in the scripture that Laban pursued Jacob a distance of seven days' journey. Certainly this is seven days that it took Laban. In other words, we're talking about seven days on camelback, seven-day journey in pursuit. Now, a camel typically could travel over rather irregular terrain, an average of 50 miles a day. Seven days times 50 miles gives you 350 miles. And if you get out your little map and, and look at the little chart down the bottom and start calculating, you'll discover that from south of Haran, over the Euphrates, down to Damascus, and then down to the northern edge of Gilead, if you were to plot that on a map, would be 350 miles. So it, it works out physically, even as it is implied here in the length of the journey. Now, what we have to think about is not so much Laban here. It's pretty 
easy to think of Laban and his men riding out across the landscape with this, this posse of several dozen camels uh, chasing after Jacob. But what we have to do is put ourselves in Jacob's sandals. I mean, this guy is not just moving his family. He is moving his herds. Now, sheep and goats just don't travel over the landscape at the rate camels travel over the landscape. They move much more slowly. So this man was having to push and push and push his herds to get them to move. And this is why I feel it's important to kind of look at the numbers here, because if we don't have at least two weeks, we've got an impossible situation here. Jacob could not have moved from Haran to northern Gilead in less than two weeks, pushing animals. He didn't have cattle cars to put them on and run them down the rail. I mean, they had to walk. And uh, sheep just aren't into you know, long-term rapid movement, and neither are goats and many of the other animals. And so it was constant pressure keeping these animals going. It is physically possible for it to have happened, but it had to be at the limit, at the very extreme. Uh, we're looking at maybe as much as 25 miles a day. Now that's a very hard push. I mean, most of us wouldn't really care to walk 25 miles a day, let alone push a herd of goats or sheep. Uh, such a distance. Now probably it wasn't quite 25 miles a day because uh, Jacob made certain provisions ahead of time. Now, now think about it for a minute. If you were Jacob and you knew where you were going to pull up camp and you knew that you had to try to get as far as you could as quickly as you could because Laban was going to come after you. So what would you do? You know, if, if you had a target date you were aiming for, you would do everything possible to facilitate your escape. So I think that his own personal herds were slowly moved further and further south each day. Far enough south that they would have a good jump on the journey, but not so far south as to arouse suspicion. And I think probably even on the very morning that he pulled up camp and put his family on the camels and, and took off, that he had already ordered his men that when that morning came along and it was the wee hours of the morning, get those herds moving, even in the dark. Get them moving. And so that when he and his camels would finally catch up with the herds, they had already traveled several miles that day already along the trail towards the Euphrates River. And of course, the big problem was getting them across the Euphrates River. There were no bridges uh, in that part of the world, uh, that is, on that part of the river at that particular time. And so it had to be forded if it was the right time of the year, and we're not really told what time of the year we're talking about here. But if we're talking about probably early fall, which would be a reasonable time, maybe, maybe it had to be earlier than that, summertime, whenever it is you normally shear sheep in that part of the world. I don't know. Probably at various times. You would think that you would mo mainly shear them in the spring, but that would be a bad time to try to ford the Euphrates. <laughs> uh, you would want it in a low water stage, especially as uh, Rachel, is Rachel here today? Rachel was saying last week that you put a sheep in the water and a sheep just, I mean, it's like putting a cork in the water. The sheep don't know how to swim and they just float because of their fur until their fur gets wet, then they sink. So that you've got a problem trying to get sheep across any kind of depth of water. So you have to have a fairly shallow body of water to, to get sheep across and move them across quickly. Well, whatever were the complications, they're not explained for us here. We simply know that he had to cross the Euphrates and he had to move these herds uh, that distance in approximately a two-week period. Jacob was being driven by his desire to go home, by
by his desire to preserve what he had, and of course by the promises of God. This, these promises of God were very, very important to this man. We noted his most recent dream, which was a reinforcement of the dream that had occurred 20 years before at Bethel back in Canaan. And God had made there a blanket promise. Let me just read it again for us in the 28th chapter of Genesis, looking at verse 15. God said this uh, to Jacob 20 years before. He said, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now that is a blanket promise. And Jacob could lean on that promise and, and know that God was with him. Now this does not mean that he isn't going to have fears and troubles and trials along the way. God's promises do not make, do not, what shall we say, grease the chute so there are no bumps and, and no friction and no delays. Uh, God's promises are there for us in spite of the difficulties we face in life. And they are there to carry us through. True to his promise, God intervened. God intervened directly because God spoke to Laban. And I don't think Laban was expecting to be spoken to by God. I don't think he had ever heard from God before, at least not the true God. Now, the picture we see here is an encampment probably in the northern edge of the hill country of Gilead. Now, today we're talking about the country of Jordan. So the northern part of the hill country, uh, very possibly up somewhere parallel to or near to uh, the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, but up on top of the range, not down in the, uh, the Arabah, the split there, the, uh, the rift zone in which the Sea of Galilee is located. He was camping. And remember, he had to take his tents and everything with him. And certainly, uh, once he was in Gilead, he felt more secure in actually setting up an official camp and putting up the tents, maybe even, even uh, because he was far enough away that uh, he felt safer. But there Laban caught up with him. Now, Laban had two options. As Laban came upon the, the encampment of Jacob, he could have just swept right into the camp and taken over. Or he could do as he did in this passage. He camped too. He stopped, said, there he is, let's camp here. And so the two camps were set up within sight of one another, probably, or possibly. It could be Laban decided to hide over the other side of the hill so that Jacob wouldn't see him and, and flee. Whatever the case was, they were not far apart. Now, why did Laban do this? Well, certainly, I think he wanted time. He wanted time to think. What shall I do? Oh, I, I, I've, my, my mind, you know, his mind was filled with dark thoughts. When he first heard about Jacob fleeing, I mean, he thought very bad thoughts. And we, we have noticed this as we read through the, this particular passage of Scripture. And, and uh, all he could think was how he was going to get even with Jacob for what Jacob had done. But then God came and spoke to him in the middle of the night. said, don't you say anything either good or bad to him. 
Well, when you're a man filled with dark thoughts and, 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 and uh, your emotions are rolling, it's pretty hard to suddenly become neutral, you know, pH of seven here in, in the middle of this uh, particular situation. I mean, this man was totally diffused by the only one who could do that, and that was the Almighty. And God had given him an om ominous warning. Now, we need to note, of course, Laban was not a follower of God. It wasn't that Laban said, oh, Lord, what shall I do now? And God said this. No, I mean, God just broke in on his life and spoke to him in a dream or however, said in the night. And this is what you will do. You will not do this and you will not do this. This is what you do or you're a dead man. You know, this is implied at least here. And uh, so what's this guy going to do? Why, why does he pay attention to this? Since he was not a follower of God, why does he care what God said? Well, first of all, we note this man was extremely superstitious. And that is, is implied through his emphasis on his teraphim. And, of course, what he had said earlier about Jacob being a blessing and how God had blessed his herds because Jacob was there. And so he was, he was very superstitious. He had seen what God had done through Jacob. So he knew there was a reality here and that he was in danger if he did not pay heed to God's warning. But think about this poor man. The whole motivation behind this hot pursuit was gone. <laughs> that which had driven him over these seven days of hard camel riding and bringing his kinsmen along, suddenly the motivation's gone. And obviously he had to explain to his kinsmen what would happen or they're going to think some pretty dark thoughts about him too. You've drug us all this way just so you can come and, and tell Jacob a thing or two? You know, this doesn't seem right to us. No, he had to explain, of course, to them the whole situation. So when he finally chooses to come in to Jacob's camp, he comes in as a toothless lion preparing or trying to act fierce, but unable to do any harm. Can you just imagine the, the, the frustration within him? <laughs> this is what I came to do and I can't do it. I've got to come in and, and, and be you know, reasonable with this man. Studying this, it reminded me, and that's why I stuck the verses uh, on there that I did, it reminded me of the relationship that exists between God's people and the roaring lion of Scripture, Satan. Satan comes to try to intimidate us. But the dude's toothless. Let's look, if you will, at 1 Peter. Now, this is a very well-known passage of Scripture and one that probably you frequently use. I hope you do. 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith, 
knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And let me read the 10th verse too. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now this does not tell us, of course, that Satan has no power, but Satan can be resisted and he has no power that God does not allow him to have vis-a-vis -vis his people. He is on the prowl like a roaring lion, seeking those he might devour. Laban was seeking to devour Jacob. And Jacob later on, and I'll, I'll note this, knew that if Laban had had his way, Jacob would have walked away from this encounter with nothing but the staff which he first crossed the Euphrates with going into Paden Aram. 20 years, he would have had nothing. He would have lost his wives, his children, all his flocks, if Laban had had his way. There's a verse in the fourth chapter of James that is very fitting to use along with the Peter chapter, which simply says, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and what will he do? He will flee. He will flee. But what is a prerequisite to his fleeing? Our submission to God. You remember the seven sons of Sceva who attempted to cast out demons in their own strength? And the demon said, and this is one of the funniest passages of the New Testament scripture. You know, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who in the world are you guys? And they all went tearing out of the building naked because one guy beat them up. You know? One guy beat up seven uh, brothers. Well, if we're in submission to God, the devil must flee as we resist him. And that is the key to our, at least a key, to our successful living in Christ. Satan roars loudly, and he does his best to intimidate us. But he has no authority over the true Christian who is submitted to God. And key words there are true and submitted. If we are true Christians, then these passages apply to us. And if we're submitted to him, then we can make them effective in our lives. If we're not true Christians in the first place, forget it. And if we're not submitted to him, the enemy will intimidate us. And his roarings will scare us. His seductions will have their effect in our lives, and we will become what seems to be portrayed in Scripture, at least uh, possibly what uh, Paul is referring to in Corinthians as defeated Christians or carnal Christians. I have a hard time with that, but uh, at least that's what Paul seems to talk about there. Faithfulness and obedience are keys here, too. Faithfulness to God and obedience to His Word. These are really the reflections of true subservience, submission. If we're really in submission, we are faithful. If we're really in submission, we are obedient to God and to His Word. And if these things are true, we have no reason to fear the enemy. He has no power over us. He can growl and grumble and, and bare his teeth, but he can't touch us. Just as Laban could not 
touch Jacob because God stood in the way. It is the same principle here. We know as we look at the book of Job that God will not allow anything into our lives that is not part of his benevolent plan for our good. Now we may look at Job and say, but look what Job suffered. You know, boils all over his body and his kids all dead and his wife telling him to curse God. And I mean, everything had fallen apart and he's got these three friends who are telling him how bad he is. And, uh, you know, that, you look at that situation and you'd say, whoa, you know, I'd be in a deep depression if that happened to me. But notice how Job went through that whole thing. You know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How could he do that? He could only do that because God was in there strengthening him. God was with him through this trial and this tribulation. And God was not going to allow him to be tempted beyond that he was able to bear. And Job came through that with shining armor, if you will, and flying colors. Now, is Job unique? Is he the only one who went through experiences like that throughout the history of the human race? And I don't think so. I think he is simply a type, an example that is given for us to look to. And it encourages us to be faithful and to trust in him, in God. Laban was thoroughly dampered here in this situation. He had to avoid violating God's command, and so he had to choose his words carefully as he spoke to, Laban, uh, to, to Jacob. Remember now, God said, don't speak to him either good or bad. Just be neutral in your speech, in effect. How do you do that? You know? It's pretty hard, you know, if you're, you're filled with certain emotions. It's, it's really hard to put yourself in neutral. So he had to come into the situation and think carefully, now, how am I going to speak to, Jake, uh, to Jacob? He can't come up and wiggle his finger under his nose and say, you dirty guy, why did you do this? He had to, so he chose to ask questions. Now, the questions have a very accusatory tone to them, but nevertheless, uh, they were questions. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting we, we laughed at this, I think, when we read this uh, at the end of class last time, and I think rightly so. Can you imagine the incredulity that entered Jacob's mind when Laban said these words in verse 27 of 31st chapter? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, with timbrel and with lyre? and did not allow me to kiss my sons and daughters, of course, meaning his grandsons and granddaughters as well as his daughters. I mean, if he just told me we'd had a party, we'd had a going away party, and we'd had festivity, we'd invited all the neighbors, and we'd have killed the fatted calf, I mean, it would have been a grand and glorious time, and look what you missed out on. <laughs> uh, just like Satan. Satan lies through his teeth. Satan is the father of lies, the scripture says. He does not know how to tell the truth. Even when he quotes scripture, remember how he quoted scripture to Jesus? He always quoted it with deceit in mind, which makes it a lie. Not that the scripture was a lie, but the way he used it was a lie. And uh, Laban is, is, is of the same character, the same nature. And so he lies through his teeth here trying to cause Jacob to feel badly because Jacob did what Jacob knew he had to do. Now, 
Laban admits to Jacob that I'm not going to be able to harm you. And he tells him why. He says, your God spoke to me, and I'm not going to be able to harm you. Well, I'm sure that was like this for Jacob, you know. God stepped in, and God did what he, would, what he had promised he would do. But he said to him, I certainly could have harmed you greatly. I just want you to know what I could have done to you. Isn't that like Satan? I mean, Satan wants us to know what he could do to us if it weren't for God. Of course, he won't usually inject God. He'll try to convince us that he can do it, and he was going to do it to us. But for God, he cannot. He did concede to Jacob that he had the right to move. He said, yeah, I know that you had a longing for your father, and he, by implication he was saying and you, you were right in going, you had to go back and see your father and your family, and so this was, this was fine. But he says, I have a bone to pick with you. Why did you steal my gods? <laughs> Boy, that was news to Jacob. Steal your gods? You know, I, I think Jacob just about doubled over. I don't know, you know. <laughs> steal his little clay things. You know, I, I'm not into doll collection, you know. I don't, don't need them. But what's interesting is here, Jacob is still in the throes of this whole thing, and he feels compelled to, to answer... Uh, Jacob's questions, even though he doesn't need to, because Laban in his statement basically acknowledges why Jacob did leave, but Jacob does in the 31st verse answer Laban's first accusatory question by saying, because I was afraid, for I said, lest you take your daughters from me by force. In other words, he acknowledged Laban's ability to do this, and he was afraid that he would do it, and, and uh, so he answered that question. And then, of course, he answers the, the second question also when he says, the one with whom you find your God shall not live. Take, take your friends with you and, and, and go look and see if you can find anything you find of yours that's among uh, my, my things. You take those things and whoever stole your God shall not live. And the scripture makes it clear that Jacob didn't know that Rachel had taken them. It's important. <laughs> to recognize that because Jacob dearly loved Rachel and he would not have offered her on the altar of Laban's wrath. And would Laban have executed his own daughter? I doubt it. He was a pretty bad guy, but I don't think he would have done that. He would not have looked good in front of everyone. So he would not have taken Jacob seriously at that offer, but he certainly would have been quick to accuse Jacob if he had found his little idols there amongst Jacob's things. Jacob was certain this man was inventing a cause for strife. You're just making this up so that you have an excuse to accuse me and, and to come chasing after me. Your idols aren't here. What would I do with your lifeless teraphim anyway? Unless, of course, as we noted last time, they had some role in, in inheritance, which is, which is a possibility. Look at verse 33, if you will. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two maids, and he did not find them. That's the teraphim. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. And Laban felt through all the tent, but he did not find them. 
And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry, uh, angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched and did not find the household gods. So you kind of put yourself here, Laban's going around, poking through all the tents, going in one tent, and running his hands through all the stuff. He knows what the little gods feel like, you know. Why, why is he feeling his way? Those tents are dark inside, and he didn't have any flashlight, you know. So the best way to find these things would be poke your hands in everything. And, you know, these guys were carrying a lot of stuff. This probably took a while <laughs> to poke through everything. Uh, to, to try to find these, uh, these little idols. He began with Jacob's tent. And then he went to Leah's and the, the, the other two concubines. And finally, he went to Rachel's tent. He poked through everything except the camel saddlebag that she was using for a chair. Now, she excused herself, said, My Lord, she, proper way to refer to your father, of course, Anyway, she said, I, I can't rise because I'm in my menstrual period. He accepted her excuse, which may not have been an excuse. I mean, it could very well have been that she was telling the truth. But he didn't make her rise. He didn't search through the saddlebag that was under her for obvious reasons because uh, a woman in her menstrual period, you just didn't do those things. It wasn't uh, considered not only proper, but it was thought to be wrong. Whether he suspected anything, whether he thought, this girl is, is conning me here uh, or not, uh, we can't tell. It's very possible he simply trusted his daughter. Well, she wouldn't steal, and what would she want them for, you know, kind of thing. Whatever, whatever is the situation here. Did God blind Laban's eyes? Did God cause Laban to not even think a second thought about that saddlebag? It's very possible God did. Why, did God want them to have the teraphim? I don't think so. But God didn't want Laban to have any excuse to accuse Jacob any further. He searched diligently, says he felt through everything. Searched diligently, and he found nothing. Nothing amongst Jacob's goods that he could claim was stolen. I mean, we're talking about a man who is perplexed here. Well, let's see how Jacob responds to this thing in verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. 
If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. This man was venting his spleen. Laban was perplexed at his failure to discover anything amongst Jacob's goods that he could claim was stolen, but Jacob was livid. Jacob had been threatened, he had been accused, he was harassed, and yet his accuser could produce no evidence to support his accusatory questions. And so Jacob goes back to the beginning, to the first time he met Laban, and he starts to recount what took place, not blow by blow, but in general terms. For 20 years, he had held this anger in, he had pushed this rage down. From the time he was cheated concerning the two wives to start with when he was given Leah instead of Rachel, and then he ended up marrying Rachel too, and, and then all his wages, I mean, he just kept stuffing it, stuffing it down inside himself, and now he could t contain it no longer. Now, certainly, he, part of this was the stress of the flight. I mean, he had been moving and moving and shoving, and they probably had rather short nights trying to get far away as they could before Laban caught up with them. And, and then the constant looking over his shoulder, you know, is Laban coming? And then finally to hear that God has prevented Laban from doing him any harm, the cork pops, and, and Jacob just lets it flow. I mean, he dumps all over, Jacob dumps all over Laban. He recounted what it was like to be responsible for the herds of an ungrateful man for 20 years. I think sometimes we have, may have a little bit of an odd notion about shepherding. We may remember the 23rd Psalm, you know, where, where we read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, he leads me, you know, into uh, green pastures and beside the still waters. It sounds very idyllic. You know, it reminds you of some of the English pastoral scenes of the uh, later Romantic period. You know, beautiful trees and leaves changing color and the sheep standing in the, in the lush pasture, the stream going by, and everything is so calm and perfect. But we have to remember the 23rd Psalm, of course, was written by God to, to us, to comfort us, and it's written from the, from the sheep's point of view, you know. It looks... Uh, looks pretty good when you've got God as your shepherd. And so it seems a little bit idealistic. But we get a realistic understanding of what shepherding was like when we read these terms here in, in verses 38 through 40 of what it was like for Jacob. I mean, if a beast destroyed an animal, I had to repay it because I was the shepherd. If, a, if an animal was stolen a day or stolen a night, I had to repay it because I was the shepherd. You as the owner bore no loss. I froze at night and I, I was burned up during the day and it was hardly any time for sleep, guarding against the wild animals. Shepherding was not a fun thing. And yet you kept changing my wages. I can have this and then I can have that. No, I can't have this. I can have that. Always looking out for your good and to my detriment. Was this wrong? I don't think so. I think Laban needed to hear it. And I think Jacob needed to get it off his mind and off his heart. 
And Jacob ended his little tirade by saying, And you would leave me with nothing but my staff. If it were not for the fact that you're afraid of the God of Abraham, and rightly so, and you're also afraid of my father, and rightly so. Because remember, Isaac had inherited everything that Abraham had had. And Abraham had driven a Mesopotamian army away and destroyed it. So, so what is Laban going to do with that kind of odds? I mean, if Jacob got angry at La I mean, if uh, Isaac got angry at Laban and went after Laban, Laban was a dead man. I mean, there was nothing he could have done to resist the strength of Isaac. And so Laban simply, you know, is blunted here and unable to carry out what he wanted to do, and Jacob knew it. And then he finally says, he closed his argument by asserting that God's appearance to you last night was an act of judgment on you and an act of mercy upon me. God was making it right. All that I have is legitimately mine, even though you would take it away if you could. Now think about that and transpose that into our situation. As believers in Christ, all God's promises are ours. But Satan would take them away if he could. He would deny them to us if he could. And if we listen to his roarings, and if we're intimidated by him, he actually is able to, because we begin to doubt and not to believe what God has promised. And therefore we fall into despair and we become depressed, and, 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 and we problems seem to overwhelm us because we don't trust in the promises of God. Verse 43. Laban gets his chance now. <laughs> and notice how he goes way out around Robin's barn. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flock, flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? So come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Yegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galad. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galad. And Mizpah, for he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness. Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the meal. They ate the meal and they spent the night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. Notice Laban's response. Does he give a point-by-point -point refutation of Jacob's accusations? He makes no effort to deny them. He knows that his efforts would be useless because even in his black heart, he knew it was true. 
And he also knew that probably no one there would come to his defense, let, least of all his daughters. They would probably support Jacob. So why get in this mess? Why, why get involved in this? So he changes the subject completely and decides to point out an undeniable truth. These are my daughters. Yeah. Those are my grandkids. True. Those animals came from my flock. True. See, he's pointing out true things. These are my daughters. Those are my grandkids. These animals belong to my flock. You know, <laughs> true. You, you know, what can one say? Yeah, this is, this is true. Does he admit guilt? Does he acknowledge blameworthiness in any of this? Does he say, oh, I'm so sorry, Jacob. I really mistreated you. I was really a bad... No. Does he? Not at all. Laban would never admit guilt. He would never repent, nor would he ask forgiveness. His pride would not allow him to admit culpability. <coughs> I am guiltless in this all. Whatever you say, these are my daughters, those are my grandkids, those animals came from my flock. This is true. <laughs> I'm not guilty of anything here. He could only shift the blame, change the subject to something that put him in a better light. There's a strong teaching in here for us because what God wants is exactly the opposite from us as his people. When we have wronged others, God wants us to repent. God wants us to confess our sin. God wants us, where possible, to make restitution for anything that we have done that violated God's commands. God wants us to be like David. When Nathan the prophet waved his finger under David's nose and said, Look what you have done, David. You have sinned against God and Uriah and Bathsheba. And David was smitten in his heart, and David repented, and David was deeply humbled. And as a result, David wrote that passage we so often refer to, and, and let's just turn to it again in Psalm 51. And I hope this is something that we acknowledge that we need to pray relatively often. I hope we never get to the place where we think, why should I pray this? I'm a good guy. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only, have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. And then, of course, he goes on, and in the, whole, the whole psalm is a beautiful, a beautiful prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That's not a prayer we pray once, and forever it's that way. We must pray it over and over and over again. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Fill me today with your spirit. Because, as Jesus said to Peter, you are clean, but not all. Let me clean, and in, in, in that case, he washed his feet, but it was a symbol. A symbol of the fact that he needed, if you will, 1 John 1.9 applied to his life frequently. If we confess our sin, 
He is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sin. But pride so often stands in our way. Our pride keeps us from acknowledging our sin and repenting of it. We don't want to acknowledge to others that we have failed. And yet that's what God calls upon us to do. And that was Laban's problem. He was too proud. Who, me? Hey, what I did was right. You know, I had the authority and, and, and you just misinterpreted everything. This is all mine and you're lucky to have it. You should be thankful that I have allowed you to have all this. So what does Laban do? He doesn't want to admit any guilt. He doesn't want to have to repent. He doesn't want to have to do anything. So he says, I know, let's make a covenant. Let's patch it all up. Let's make everything good. Let's, let's not deal with the issue. Let's put a band-aid over it here and let's have a covenant here between you and me. Why does Jacob do it? Why doesn't Jacob say, look, not until you straighten up your act or, or you know, you admit your fault in all of this. Jacob knows this is the best he's going to get out of Laban. I mean, it's, it's pretty good, really, he thinks, I'm sure. And so he's willing to go along with this and, and to make this covenant with Laban. And so they set up a pile of stones, a heap of stones as a monument. Jacob set up a stone and he had his, all the kinsmen come and add their stones to it. And so there's this pile of stones which becomes a monument there. And by the way, there was no lack of stones with which to build monuments in that part of the world. And there still are, is no lack of stones in that part of the world. It's a stony world, let me clue you. But, uh, and then they sat down and had a friendship dinner together. And, and later on they'll have another one, a, a sacrificial dinner. But at this point... They have just kind of a little friendship dinner. And uh, Laban says, uh, this pile of stones, you see this pile of stones here? This is Yegar Sahadutha. Oh, <laughs> which simply means a stone pile testimonial. And uh, Jacob really calls it the same thing. He says it's Galad, which, you know, the Hebrew language, which ev eventually evolves out of all of this. Uh, Gal. Gal means a heap, and ed means witness, so a witness pile. So both of them really call it the same thing, a, a heap or a pile of witness to this, this covenant. But the scripture never uses those names again, or those terms again. But there is a term that was more popular, which becomes applied here, and that's midzpah. And uh, that particular term is used several times in scripture, and, of course, many of us know it by that uh, because that term means watchtower. Now, did that mean that they, were, they, that they made this monument near a watchtower? Well, that's possible. But, of course, it's also referring to the, to the statement made there by Laban that the Lord watch, look out between you and me while we are apart. And so the term has uh, at least that meaning and possibly also a meaning referring to a structure that may have stood nearby because it was very common in that part of the world for watchtowers to be built all over the place uh, where a shepherd or a vineyard operator or whatever would be looking out over the landscape to guard against mostly wild beasts that would come in either to tear the flock or the foxes to root out the vines or whatever else. And so these watchtowers were commonly built. And as I said, there was no lack of stones with which to build watchtowers either. And so this was very common. Well, uh, I'd like to say a few things about this because 
many of us are familiar with what is sometimes called the Mizpah benediction. And I'd like to speak to that within the context of this, and uh, we'll do that next week.